Dinosaurs. When we think of them, they are often relegated in our minds to displays in natural history museums. But few consider the fact that these prehistoric giants once walked where Walmart parking lots exist today. And furthermore, that their remains can also be found under the most unlikely of places, like airport terminals. Dinosaurs. They died in one of five periods when the world nearly ended. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Pleasure to welcome to Watching America, Peter Brannan. He is the author of The Ends of the World. Let me repeat, The Ends of the World. Not singular, but plural. And the reason being, there have been at least five different periods of time when the Earth has been in peril, meaning that more than 50% of the population of various species has met its demise. Now, I have to tell you a little bit of a confession. The book was suggested to me by our producer, Paul Bebo. I looked at it. I thought, okay, yes, this kind of could be interesting. But I had to say that it wasn't on my top shelf initially, but then I picked it up. And then I had to revise my thinking. You see, I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I wasn't one of those little boys that had plastic figures of dinosaurs and T-Rexes around. However, once I picked this book up and read page nine, I could not put it down. So if you'll allow the indulgence before our guest speaks, this is what he has written. In North America, fossils are found not only in the mythic southwest and in exposed Arctic mountainsides, but hidden under Walmart parking lots, in quarries, and in road cuts on the interstate, underneath Cincinnati is an endless fossil base relief of tropical sea life in the early oceans of the Ordovician period, which ended half a billion years ago, in the second worst extinction in Earth's history. There are plesiosaurs in riverbanks in downtown Austin, saber-toothed cats in Los Angeles, and killer crocs from the Triassic period under Dulles Airport just outside Washington, D.C. And in Cleveland's riverbanks are the armoured-plated remains of a guillotine-mouthed titanic fish from the Devonian period 360 million years ago. In essence, ladies and gentlemen, North America and the rest of the world, but North America in particular, is filled with the remnants and evidence well, of the near demise of planet Earth. How did you, Peter Brennan, get involved with this type of research? Um, well, sort of accidentally and obliquely. I was a science journalist living in New England, and I was writing a lot about the oceans. And when you write about the oceans, you um, tend to discover that a lot of things are going wrong in the oceans. There's things like uh, ocean acidification and overfishing and nutrient pollution and overdevelopment and all these things. And uh, I did a program for science journalists at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And I noticed that um, 
you know, a lot of the scientists there were very worried about future changes to the ocean, both its chemistry and um, with warming. And in particular, I noticed that some of them were studying these ancient events in Earth's history for a guide into what um, our future might be. And I, I thought that was so interesting that sort of the only experimental record we have of how the planet actually responds to pulling the sorts of levers with carbon dioxide and things like that that we're pulling right now as a civilization were, you know, these experiments have been run on the planet before, and if you know how to read the rocks, uh, you can just go back and see how the planet actually responded. And so when I started going down that wormhole, this was maybe seven or eight years ago, um, it led me into this whole world of geology and sort of this revelation to me that no matter where you're standing, under your feet is this science fiction world that most people aren't very familiar with. But when you know how to read the rocks, uh, you can sort of get insights into these past different planets that the planet has been over its biography. And in particular in the book, uh, we can learn about these devastating events in Earth history. Um, and I thought there was sort of this untold story about how, you know, mass extinctions in the public imagination are thin, you know, things that happen when big rocks fall out of the sky and wipe out dinosaurs and things like that. But there was this conversation going on in the geology community over the last 30 years that I, I didn't think really had made it to the public eye, which is that, you know, there, there are lots of mass extinctions in Earth history, and most of them were caused by huge injections of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and rapid climate change and all the sorts of things that we're doing on the planet today. So I thought there was both an interesting sort of sci-fi aspect to this, that the planet has been many planets over its lifetime and it's just sitting under our feet. And also there's this news hook that, um, you know, when things go really wrong on this planet, a lot of the times it has to do with climate change. Okay. Well, there's been five different periods. Would you like to uh, enumerate the, the, the five different periods of, of near demise of planet Earth as we've known it? There have actually been something like over 20 mass extinctions in Earth history, but there are five that really, that I illuminate in the book, um, that really stand out. They're the big outliers where the majority of life on Earth goes extinct in what geologically is a really brief period of time. So, you know, it's on the order of thousands of years, which sounds like a lot to us, but when you're dealing with geology where things come in sort of 100 million year packages, a few thousand years is basically as fast as things can happen in, in the rock record. And the really big ones, you know, the one that everyone's familiar with is the extinction of the dinosaurs. But what's amazing is that that's actually the most recent of these big five mass extinctions. And it actually doesn't have much in common with the other ones. So I, I can start at the beginning. You mentioned that the Ordovician period is, uh, you know, is over 400 million years ago. This is a totally different planet. Pangea, which people might have heard of, this big supercontinent, uh, was, was going to come together in hundreds of millions of years. This was... So it's not even in the age of Pangea. It's well before that. Dinosaurs are still hundreds of millions of years in the future. And you have all this interesting sea life. Um, there's no life on land, really, to speak of. The interior of the continent would have looked like, you know, the feed from the Mars Curiosity rover. But in the oceans, there was tons of life. But it wasn't life that we would be familiar with. It was all these sorts of, you know, bug-like things, these creepy crawly things that look like horseshoe crabs and giant sort of squid-like animals and these 20-foot-long cone shells. It was just this totally alien world. And what's amazing, what was amazing to me is that one of the best places on planet Earth to sort of become acquainted with this world is Cincinnati, Ohio, of all places. And if you're in Cincinnati and you just pull over to the side of the road and you look at the rocks that are, you know, falling out of the, these road cuts on the side of the highway, you sort of get an introduction to this world. You can find these things called trilobites, um, which are sort of these bug-like creatures that lived in the ocean and these cephalopods, these squid-like things I was talking about. And at the end of the division, almost everything you find on the side of the highway in Cincinnati goes extinct. And it seems to go extinct from this big, massive ice age. On the other side of the planet in Africa, which was over the South Pole at the time, there's all this evidence for these massive ice sheets. And by putting massive ice sheets on the South Pole, it would have dropped sea level hundreds of feet, and you wipe out all the shallow habitat where all this life was living, and you change ocean circulation, and then so you change the food structure of the ocean. And so this is actually the second worst mass extinction of all time worse even than the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. And it's thought that we get, the planet gets plunged into this ice age because of falling CO2. So today we're worried about CO2 going up too fast, but in this mass extinction, it seems like CO2 dropping, making the planet really cold, was just as much of a sort of threat to planet Earth. Um, the second mass extinction, which is 375 million years ago, is called the Late Devonian mass extinction. The planet's quite different by now. We're now in the age of fish. Before fish really were bit players in the story of life on Earth, by the Devonian, they've really come to dominate the life in the oceans. And on land, we have the sort of beginning of land plants, you know, where I said the land was pretty desolate before 
devoting is really this major transitional period of life on Earth where life is starting to colonize the continent. And, and stop me if I'm going on. You know, no, no, this is, this, stuff, is, this is very interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, you start to get the colonization of, of land by land plants, and soon after that, sea creatures start coming onto land. You have insects, which came from life in the ocean, and uh, this is when we start having our ancestors, these fish-like things, start waddling onto... Uh, onto land at low tide, maybe. So this is really where our this is where our ancestors come from. But the Devonian is a weird period because it's not only is there this massive mass extinction I talked about in the book, but it's really a period where planet Earth is struggling in general over tens of millions of years. We have multiple mass extinctions, including one really you know one to two really devastating mass extinctions. And it actually is thought that the land plants might have had something to do with it. So you know we think of plants and trees and forests and things like that is these benevolent, you know, natural life-giving things, which they are. But their introduction onto planet Earth was really pretty disruptive. Disrupted the planet's uh, geochemical cycles. It changed the climate. Trees and forests sucked up so much CO2 that at the end of the Devonian, you have this big ice age again. Um, they would have been uh, breaking up rocks and dumping all these nutrients in the ocean, which sounds like a good thing, but it could have fueled these massive algae blooms that were pretty devastating to life in the seas. So this was sort of a stra- this is sort of a, a, a strange mass extinction as well, and these weird fish that are living in the ocean just get completely devastated by this mass extinction, and the biggest reefs in Earth's history get wiped out. So that's number two, and number three and four are pretty similar. Um, by the third mass extinction, you're in the Permian, uh, which is um, you know over 100 million years after the Devonian mass extinction, and at this point you have Things walking around on land, they're pretty unfamiliar to us because most people only care about dinosaurs when they go to, you know, natural history museums. There are all these weird animals walking around on land, and there are forests have reestablished themselves, and reefs have reestablished themselves. And at the end of the Permian, you have this massive volcanic event in Russia uh, where enough lava erupted that it could cover the lower 48 United States a kilometer deep in lava. So this is just a totally outrageous event. And it's not even worth talking about Yellowstone, you know, in the same book, because it's just, you know, this is a once in a billion year uh, catastrophe. And the volcanoes injected so much CO2 into the air that it made much of the oceans as hot as a jacuzzi. And it kicked off this incredible period of global warming that almost wiped out life on Earth. This is by far the worst mass extinction in Earth's history. And then the next mass extinction, 50 million years later, basically the same thing happens. At this point, you have um, the first dinosaurs have shown up, the first mammals have shown up. But the planet is dominated by these uh, crocodile-like animals. And in the oceans, modern coral reefs have evolved for the first time. Um, But, you know, life on Earth gets wiped out again in this massive volcanic event. Three million square miles of uh, the planet was covered in lava. Huge amounts of CO2 went into the air, global warming, ocean acidification, all this bad stuff happens. And this actually launches the true age of dinosaurs, because dinosaurs were sort of waiting for these weird crocodile-like things to get wiped out first. And when they did at the end of this extinction called the Entriassic, dinosaurs take over for 135 million years. And then the fifth mass extinction is the one that everyone knows about. It's the end Cretaceous when um, a big asteroid hit the planet and um, sort of wiped out all the dinosaurs and all the pterosaurs and all the mosasaurs and all these weird giant reptiles and sort of gave way to the the age of mammals, which we've been living in ever since. And now there's this question about whether we might be kicking off another mass extinction. So okay. just about as briefly as I can sort of summarize our history. But. Well, Peter, you did a wondrous job. Um, Peter, I have to tell you that I share with my university students that I am uh, ignorant of most things. That's factually correct. I am ignorant <laughs> of most things. So I am very much at peace uh, divulging and revealing my ignorance, particularly in matters of uh, geology and, and what have you. A very simple question, which I'm sure other people think. We hear that all of the, you know, the platelets, uh, all the continents were originally connected. And so you can look at a map and you can do the jigsaw puzzle bit and you see that South America can attach lovely and wonderfully to Africa, etc., and Australia can be moved up. When one does that and connects all the pieces, you have a, a sphere, you have this orb, and it would appear logically that if you connect all the pieces, you've got Earth on one side, solid ground of some sort, and you've got all water on the other. How do you explain this? So that's true, that you have this supercontinent called Pangaea, where at one point all the you know land masses uh, that we see today on the globe were connected in this giant sort of shape of the letter C that stretched from uh, the North Pole to the South Pole. 
and this started to break up around 200 million years ago. But in the height of the Pangaea, you did have uh, all the continents sort of connected. And, you know, your intuition is right. Just like you had Pangaea supercontinent, you also had uh, this super ocean called Panthalassa, which really did take up, you know, if you had if you're an alien spaceship visiting planet, planet Earth from the other side, you would have just seen it as this blue orb with virtually no land whatsoever. So Pangaea gets a lot of the attention for being a supercontinent, but it's true. There was this massive, massive ocean that was larger even than the Pacific Ocean is today. Let me ask you, how did you go from having the models and going to see and hearing the music of John Williams when you you know saw Jurassic Park and what have you to actually pursuing this as the career, which you've, you've alluded to, uh, but actually being able to welcome the idea of even other eras and periods of time and ages with all this catastrophe. I mean, was it a hard sell initially, or did you just gravitate to it and say, I love this stuff, I want to gobble it up, I want to go to, you mentioned that you lived in New England, for instance, and Dinosaur State Park is off 91. I know, I used to live in Connecticut, and you went there. Um, How did you start to entertain the idea of a much broader field, if you will, uh, accordioning out, if you will, the the various ages of, of Earth? I guess you weren't as enchanted as I was as a little kid with dinosaurs, but it, there is this strange phenomenon where dinosaurs tend to enchant kids and sort of capture their imagination. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's sort of a shame that we lose this uh, fascination. Dinosaurs are sort of seen as these things that kids are interested in. And then, you know, you grow up and you become an adult and you start thinking about more serious things. Um, and I sort of drifted away from it too. Um, you know, when I, I, I didn't pursue it in college and I, I came back to it, uh, sort of through this other route about writing about um, climate change and ocean chemistry changes and realizing that Earth history isn't just childish fascination. It's We take to heart this idea that those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. And that's just as true for Earth history as human history. And I've never been exposed to it in that way. In some ways, it's a, my book is sort of a Trojan horse because I, I capitalize on people's interest in things like dinosaurs and mm-hmm. things you see in the Natural History Museum as a way to sort of... Um, hear about climate change and the things we're doing today in a way that hasn't been presented to them. Because it really is half the story of climate change is going back and looking at how the planet has responded in the past. And the only way to sort of decipher that is to learn how to read the rocks. So there's a very high learning curve in writing this book because you have to you know, learn all this jargon and geology and paleoclimate and geochemistry. But once you do, you sort of see the world for the first time. You know, I, I think I didn't pick up the geology bug or the paleontology bug in high school or college because, like I said, I lived in New England, and as far as I was concerned, all the rocks were just boring granite around there. It wasn't very interesting to me. Where, but, in, where in New England did you grow up? So I lived outside of Boston. Lexington, Concord, I, or? Near, near Concord, Acton, Massachusetts. Okay, yeah, I know it. And then you started to look at rocks, and then, I, mean, I would say here that the, there's a, a fascination because once you know where you are in relation to those rocks, and this is why I found your book so compelling. Uh, and I'm a late bloomer. I'm, you know, I confess, as I've said at the outset, I, I, I didn't dislike dinosaurs, but I, mm-hmm. other than checking a book out once at the library, I, I, I wasn't fixated with them. T- to right. me, the most interesting thing of T Rex was it's the British band with Mark Bolan. But, right. Uh, right. but besides that, I, I now find that I've picked this book up. I'm not going to let anyone else here in the studio have it. I'm holding on to it and keeping it. And and you've made me a believer, or at least impassioned about these things, because I see the connect connectedness with the ground I'm standing on. It must have happened to you. You must have been this moment when you said, "Oh my gosh, I am actually walking and treading now where former dinosaurs existed, and looking at rock, which has indication of of fish life of a sort uh, that was uh, aqua life submerged." Uh, that connectedness does does that just play through your mind at night when you go to sleep still? It does. I really feel like you know I have the you know the zeal of a recent convert to this to geology because I just sort of you know oftentimes I just walk around in a daze when I see uh, you know a sandstone or a limestone and I'm suddenly transported to you know 100 million years ago at the bottom of the ocean. Um, so this happened to me earlier this week. I was driving through Kansas and it really you know you see this farmland everywhere and can seem like a pretty monotonous, boring uh, landscape. And then you see an outcrop of limestone and, and you're suddenly transported to the bottom of this ocean 100 million years ago where there were these giant marine reptiles and, um, you know, clams that were eight feet uh, long. And 
it's just this totally different world. And so when you're driving through, for instance, you know, like Nebraska, Western Nebraska, and you see the yeah. bluffs suddenly coming up to you, you see seabeds. I see. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm transported to sort of the science fiction world, um, which was just as real as the moment of Earth history that we're living in right now. Um, it's easy to see, you know, skeletons of dinosaurs and things like that. And, you know, sort of appreciate that they were around at one point, but not quite believing it because it's sort of so, um, you know, sort of so ridiculous to imagine that that's true. Um, but once you can sort of read the rock, you have no choice but to just appreciate the fact that, um, you know, I guess in some sense it's sort of a Buddhist concept of just that everything has changed and the landscapes that we see that we take for granted as these permanent things and um, are just, you know, t over geological periods, they're total to subject to complete change. You know, where your most favorite, your hometown and your most favorite, you know, place in the world at some point might be at the bottom of the ocean or it might be at the top of a Himalayan style mountain range or, you know, might be in the middle of a mantle um, and that all things are sort of changed. And geology just drives that home to you that, um, you know, sort of this too shall pass, I guess. Well, let me give the listening audience a sample of, of the delight that you will find in this book. I've just turned to page 226 and uh, I had marked it uh, having not been able to put the book down last night. And he writes, my um, guest Peter Brennan writes the following, North America has also lost its many camels, and the reader says, say what? Which originated and evolved on the continent, only later spreading out into Asia and Africa. When camels were experimentally employed in military convoys across the southwest in the 1850s, Lieutenant Edward Beale unaware of the animal's ancestral connection to the land, was pleasantly surprised by their uncommon effectiveness. So you're telling us that there were camels in the United States in the southwestern part. I mean, this is incredible. And then later on you go to talk about North American uh, losing its zebras. I mean, oh, we would say in Britain zebras. Uh, American zebras. I had no idea that there were such creatures about. And then you go on to talk about uh, American saber-toothed tigers and what have you, all dotted around this land. Now, you know, obviously many of us may be familiar with things like downtown Los Angeles and and certainly the, the tar pits and what have you. But it's literally everywhere, all across this continent. Is there any way you can go across America where you're not aware of what's beneath the ground? You well, personally, I'm talking about. No, but at this point, uh, my my uh, my friend's patience has been worn thin where, you know, I'll make them pull over to the side of the road so I can go look at a rock or, um, you know, just talk their ear off about that sandstone over there. So it's constantly in the, in the back of my mind. But the example you're pointing to, which is sort of this amazing American savanna that existed here until not that long ago. Once you start to appreciate that, it becomes sort of obvious. When you drive across North America, you see these vast grasslands, and it's kind of peculiar that there aren't giant herbivores, you know, grazing them and predators chasing those herbivores. And the reason is that up until very recently, there were. We, we sort of live in this continent that's lost its giants uh, very recently, only 12,000 years ago. But it used to be the case that in North America, you had a savanna that was populated with fauna that was just as impressive, if not more so, than any African savanna. Um, and so this is a very recent uh, extinction. It's only, as I said, a few thousand years ago, whereas some of the extinctions I talk about in the book happened hundreds of millions of years ago. Well, a few, um, a recent example would be the woolly mammoths, which you talk about. Right. Um, and they were relatively recently all about. Yeah, I mean, in, in Siberia, you can find woolly mammoth meat. Um, and I talk about a... There's a Russian man. Yes, you told me there was a... Oh, she didn't tell me, but I felt like you told me when I read the book. <laughs> that there's this fascinating story uh, of a Russian gentleman who's eating, evidently thawed out, and uh, uh, meat from a woolly mammoth, if one can believe it is consumable. It must have been like eating, you know, a belt, a leather belt or something. Uh, and the interesting <laughs> thing is you, you detail that he says even no matter how much vodka he took, it couldn't make the taste better. But tell us about that. Right, yeah. I think he said it tasted like meat that had been left in the freezer too long, in sort of a characteristically laconic uh, Russian way of describing something pretty <laughs> pretty horrific. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, 
that's how recent that extinction was, that you, there's actually still meat around from it. Um, you know, I think some people think about it, woolly mammoths as back there sometime with dinosaurs, but this mass extinction was incredibly recent. It was only um, in North America, uh, you know, around 12,000 years ago, whereas some of the mass extinctions were hundreds of millions of years ago. You know, there's this weird, eerie shadow of extinction that follows people as they go into new continents and new land masses and islands over the last few tens of thousands of years. And in North America, you had, you know, all these fantastical animals that you just described uh, start to wink out around when people show up in North America. So you lose all the woolly mammoths and the mastodons and American lions, which are bigger than African lions, and uh, American cheetahs and saber-toothed cats and uh, camels and, you know, all the, and giant ground sloths. And again, this is an extinction that's so recently that in the Grand Canyon, there are caves filled with excrement from these giant ground sloths. One paleontologist describes it as sort of this incense smell, um, and he was sort of awestruck by it when he walked into this cave that was filled with uh, dung from giant ground sloths. But what's amazing about as one indication of how recent this extinction is, there are still sort of ghosts from it, both in the grocery store and in the landscape. So the avocado, for instance, is this strange fruit that has a gigantic seed in it. Um, and the seed, you know, evolved to be dispersed by animals. But the only animal big enough that could eat that and, you know, have it go through its digestive system and come out the other side are these giant ground sloths that used to live in North America. And humans have cultivated it and kept it alive, but it sort of lost its dispersal mechanism, which is this animal that humans probably drove extinct around 12,000 years ago. Another example is the pronghorn, um, which is this antelope in the southwest that can run something like 25 miles an hour faster than any of its predators. And that's because its speed didn't evolve to, you know, outrun modern predators. It, it evolved to outrun American lions and cheetahs and things like that. So there are still sort of these ghosts of this very recent mass extinction in our presence. This is Watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Peter Brennan. He is the author of The Ends of the World, not the singular end of the world, but The Ends of the World. And uh, as I uh, gave reference to at the outset of this program, I had to confess that I, you know, I didn't have a dislike for, uh, you know, dealing with science and ground and rocks and geology and what have you, or dinosaurs. But I wasn't impassioned until I picked up this book. And um, now I have to tell you that this gentleman, Peter Brennan, and I'm grateful, but he has denied me sleep because once you pick the book up, you can't stop just being enthralled by it. Uh, a lot of time is given to North America, incidentally, which leads to my next question. This is how you stirred up the soil of my intellect last night, and I couldn't sleep. I've always loved American westerns, you know, and you always have these great vistas of Monument Valley. The director, John Ford, used to love to shoot in Monument Valley. And so usually to the accompaniment of music that goes like this, and it was always that tune for some reason. And and you would see log cabins in the middle of Monument Valley, which never made any sense. Even as a boy in England watching these things, it I twigged the fact that logs come from trees, and trees are not found in the desert. And I didn't know why these families were living there, but it looked cool. That was the bottom line. So, but now I look at Monument Valley, thanks to you, Peter. I look at Monument Valley, and I'm saying... What creatures lived there? What creatures cohabited there? And so I ask you, what did live there in Monument Valley? You know, the most majestic, impressive part, perhaps, of, of the southwest of America. Well, a lot of the red rocks in the southwest are from sort of the heyday of Pangaea, which we were talking about earlier, this supercontinent in the Permian and Triassic periods. And the, the southwest and the west was sort of the interior of, of Pangaea, and it was pretty bleak there, um, from what I understand. 
Okay, um, so the, the so there wouldn't have been much life at all at any time. Well, it depends on it depends on where you are. Um, there's all sorts of rock formations there, so there are places in the southwest where you know you can find you know petrified national forests. So it was obviously a wetter time, and there are other places where you know if you go to Zion National Park, there's these giant petrified sand dunes. Basically, is what the whole park is made out of. And Monument Valley, I have to check, but I believe it's from just sort of a really arid, uh, hot interior of Pangea, which give rise to a lot of the red rocks out in the southwest. So from yeah. the west, let's go to the east. You speak in your book of being in the shadow of Manhattan, where you have, you know, the skyscrapers. And just across the Hudson, you're in the Palisades. Uh, and there are gigantic columns of, of basalt, you call it, um, that are there. And they go back 200 million years. And you're with a friend, and you're just kind of walking up the hillside and what have you, and then you go and eat in a restaurant, and you're arrested with this thought. Uh, how often does that happen to you? Well, that happens quite often. And that really was the, the, the Palisades, which you, know, you just mentioned, across from Manhattan. That was kind of my entry into this entire field. That was the first time I really had my mind blown about um, all this stuff, because I had visited New York City many times before, and I always thought the Palisades were, you know, majestic and pretty to look at across from Manhattan, but I had no idea what they were. And this is sort of how geology can sort of let you see things for the first time. This paper came out in 2013, um, and one of the authors on it was Paul Olson, who's a paleontologist at Columbia. And the paper made this claim that people had made before, but that I was unaware of, that the Palisades are part of this huge area that's spread out on many continents of volcanic rock that all came out all at once uh, 200 million years ago that caused one of the biggest mass extinctions of all time. So the Palisades are these giant seams of magma that would have been feeding these huge eruptions in New Jersey. Um, but the same kind of rock you can find from the exact same time in Brazil, Morocco, uh, Spain, um, Nova Scotia. And that's because all these places were sort of um, in the same region during Pangaea, and it all came out at once and when Pangaea was starting to break apart. And when I learned this, it just really blew my mind. And I got in touch with Paul Olson, one of the authors, and he sort of gave me a tour of, of the Palisades, and he showed me how, you know, above and below this volcanic rock, you can find these lake beds filled with uh, reptiles and fish, and what's funny is that he had been working on this mass extinction for a long time, trying to figure out what happened. He thought maybe it had been an asteroid impact, and there was this big impact crater in Quebec that he thought might have caused it. And then people realized that it didn't happen at the right time to have caused the mass extinction. And he actually works in uh, what's called the Columbia Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, which is on top of the Palisades. And so all along, he was trying to figure out what this mass extinction was caused by, and underneath his feet were was the answer. It was these big volcanic eruptions that today you can see right next to New York City. Well, that area used to, there used to be an amusement park there called Palisades Park uh, years ago, mm -hmm. and I don't think it's there in, anymore, but I was just up in that region uh, just a few months ago. But, you know, now when I go back, because of your book, I'm going to look at it differently <laughs> yeah. uh, as I'm looking at all of the world differently, and, and in particular North America. And one of the things that amazed me is, speaking of prehistoric times, you, you, you talk about these rock formations and, and indications of prior life, and it's under a bed, bath, and beyond retail store. I mean, <laughs> suddenly everything potentially becomes magic. Right. Yeah. This was a huge revelation to me is I used to think that geology and paleontology was something people went out to the deserts to do and mm. these remote romantic locations. But in fact, um, when you go to conferences or you read papers, oftentimes there will be these incredibly mundane locations that have just incredibly epochal discoveries. So one of the earliest primates in Earth history it's from around 55 million years ago, and it's found in what's called the Red Hot Truck Stop locality in Mississippi. Um, and now that is a Walmart parking lot. And the Bed Bath & Beyond parking lot, I talk about sort of the very beginnings of uh, large fossil life in all of Earth history 579 million years ago. Um, sort of right next door to this Bed Bath & Beyond and these rocks that are completely unloved and unnoticed by most people, unless you're a geologist, unless you see them through the lens of geology. I saw similar rocks in uh, Canada next to a Tim Hortons in a parking lot. There were some of the first signs of 
large life and the entire fossil record were, you know, across from a Tim Hortons. So I don't know why geologists and paleontologists are so bad at um, promotion, you know, really. Promotion, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it seems like they're keeping a secret because I, I visit these places and now they seem like sort of sacred sites to me. And people kind of look at me like I'm crazy because I'll be jumping out of the car and, you know, behind a Starbucks to go look at, you know, the rocks to see, you know, the first trees in our history. How long does it take to, to develop the acumen, the, the ability to recognize these things? Because I think if we could, you know, if persons like yourself, if you had a YouTube channel and you're putting stuff up like this and we could look, be taught how to recognize it, I think that the, the whole movement would flourish and there'd be an awakening across right. America. People saying, yes, I want to go to that, you know, right. bed, bath and, and beyond. Right, right. And not for sheets. Um, yeah, right. Or, or, or uh, cutlery. The beyond part, the well, well beyond. Um, yeah, I think once it's not too difficult to recognize that something is, you know, a sandstone or a limestone. And once you know that, you know, it's a pretty indica good indication that there might be a pretty interesting story here. So I use an app now that's called Rocked, R-O-C-K-D. Whenever I see something interesting, I, I pull it up and it tells me exactly what kind of rock I'm on. And it will like sort of point you in the right direction towards learning more about it. So, so is, really this way. is an app you have, or how does this work? Yeah, it's an app that was developed by a geologist at the University of Wisconsin, where he basically compiled all of the United States Geological Survey information on bedrock in the U.S. And it will just pick up your location and it will show you where you are on the map and sort of tell you what the rock is. So this has really been a um, you tremendous know, aid, a tremendous help, and a tremendous aid and distraction too. And it actually makes driving pretty dangerous. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, I'm always rubber, I'm always rubbernecking past every outcrop and wondering what I just went by. This is watching America on WHRV. We'll be right back. When we weren't looking, hacking, artificial intelligence, cyber, and data surveillance crept into our lives. I know something that you don't know. There's a whole art behind how you map these networks in a stealthy way. They don't just predict the future, they cause the future. I'm Dina Temple Raston. Join me for four hour long specials about the technologies that watch us. I'll be seeing you from NPR News. Let me just remind people that they're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and my guest is Peter Brennan, who has uh, awakened in me, latterly, I might add, uh, but awakened in me a, a, a real respect and thrill, dare I say it, for uh, geology. His book is entitled The Ends of the World, and again, that's ends, plural, The Ends of the World by Peter Brannan. Um, you mentioned at one point that, in a sense, the book is a bit of a Trojan horse because you also are trying to address the issue of uh, climate change. On that regard, we would be remiss if we didn't give you an opportunity to address that. Are you a pessimist or an optimist or somewhere in between? Depending on what mood I'm in, um... I can be both a pessimist or an optimist. Um, so there's there's both very frightening lessons from Earth history, but in the long run, sort of consoling lessons. So, for instance, I mentioned before that we're starting to pull the same levers as the Earth pulled during the, some of the worst mass extinctions in Earth history. So these big volcanic events that put tons of CO2 into the air and rapid, severe episodes of climate change that sort of wipe out life on Earth. We're starting to go down that same road. And what's frightening is that the worst mass extinction, the end Permian, which wiped out 96% of life in the ocean and maybe a little less on land, but it's still apocalyptic. A tremendous amount of CO2 came out of the air, more than we could ever put in the air by burning fossil fuels. But what's scary is that it's actually the rate of uh, carbon emissions that's more important because the planet can sort of, you know, on long time scales can deal, can has these big you know, geochemical cycles that have ways of uh, sort of absorbing big changes in carbon dioxide. But if you, you know, if you bend something too hard, it can break. And it's the rate of carbon emissions that's important because ocean chemistry can't catch up and you make the oceans more acidic and you have these big spikes in warming and animals might not be able to, 
you know, track the climate range that they like to be in. And that's when things really start to go south. And what's scary is that we're actually injecting CO2 into the air 10 times faster than in the worst mass extinction of all time. So if we keep going down this road, we know where it leads. It could lead to one of these big mass extinctions. The good news is we're not there yet. Um, and there's still time to, you know, save the world. And that makes living today, you know, this is one of the most interesting, exciting times to be alive in all of our history. Yes, it is. Because there's, there's still time to save the world. We know what we have to do. Um, and the other sort of, you know, this is sort of, I don't know if it's nihilistic, but a consolation in the long run is you learn from learning about these extinctions that planet Earth has seen way worse than us. And in, in the long run, the planet's going to be fine. And it really is, we have to worry about ourselves. Um, if the planet could recover from these mass extinctions before, in a million years, it's going to recover again. Would you go so far as to say, even though it might mean the demise of humanity, that the yeah. Earth is indestructible? It's pretty close to indestructible. Uh, you know, you hit it with some, you know, a rock the size of the moon, and, you know, that would probably be game over. But uh, the sorts of things it's been through before is, it's pretty awe-inspiring that you can basically almost sterilize the planet, and within 10 million years, you have this flourishing ecosystem again. It's really, you know, the next few decades to centuries, life on Earth for civilization and for industrialized society and for human beings and for a lot of the animals that we share this planet with could get really miserable. Um, and that's really, we're only given this one moment in time to live in. So we really should, you know, embrace the fact that we're stewards of this planet in the, in the moment that we're given to live in it. But if you're worried about the planet becoming sterilized or becoming Venus, you know, it will deal with us in, in the long run. It'll be, it'll be okay. One of the interesting things in your book is you talked about the correlation between uh, volcanoes and earthquakes, that there's as much as a span of maybe 150 years, but there is, it seems to be a relationship between earthquakes and volcanoes with lava coming out. Having been to Pompeii, one of the most famous places on Earth uh, because of Mount Vesuvius, having walked on that territory, I loved that area. Um, what do you make of this theory? Do you think it is is uh, credible that it will increase and that we will have more lava uh, coming out, lava coming out across uh, the plains of various continents, uh, or do you think that that is perhaps overblown? Well, so yeah, there is this interesting statistical relationship that's been drawn out between proximity of large earthquakes and volcanoes going off, which. It was first anecdotally noticed by Charles Darwin in Chile. He felt this big earthquake and, you know, learned a few days later that there had been uh, volcanoes had gone off uh, in, in Chile. And so he wondered whether this was a, there was anything to this idea. And more recently, people have, you know, made this research more robust, and it seems like there is some relationship. And what's interesting and is related to the book is that this has even been explained for you know, what was going on 66 million years ago when the dinosaurs went extinct. Not only do you have a giant asteroid hit the planet, but at the, around the exact same time as the extinction, you have some of the biggest volcanoes, again, in Earth history going off in India. And the argument has been made that maybe the asteroid might have, um, by inducing these just mind-boggling earthquakes all over the world, induced uh, the most voluminous period of lava eruption in these volcanoes at the other side of the world. And perhaps this was something of a one-two punch for dinosaurs. It wasn't just a, this asteroid, but it might have been these volcanoes as well. Um, that, that research is still you know, ongoing, and there's lots of disputes about it. But it's really it's an interesting idea. Um, you mentioned sort of an increase in earthquakes or volcanic activity. I don't see any reason why earthquakes would um, increase in the future. These are sort of you know, predictable um, stresses, slow march of continents, which you know, not, that's not picking up anytime soon. That's, there's no reason to think that earthquakes will become more frequent in the future, but there might be reason to think that volcanoes could erupt more in the future. Uh, if we melt all the ice in Greenland and all the ice in um, Antarctica, it might be the case that, you know, that, but when the crust sort of adjusts to that, if you think about yourself sort of sitting on a seat cushion and then getting up, it takes a while for the seat cushion to sort of rise up. And so that will happen if we take all the ice off these, you know, myelic ice sheets off of Antarctica or Greenland, that um, there could be an increase in volcanic activity from the Earth sort of readjusting to um, having all this weight released from on top of these um, huge land masses. So that actually is an interesting idea and might even be on a really long time scale, a sort of carbon dioxide feedback where 
it gets warmer because you're melting ice, but then you also have inputs of CO2 from these newly awakened volcanoes. So that's sort of a emerging, interesting area of research. May I ask you, do you have children? I do not. You do not. Do you have nieces or nephews? I have nieces and nephews who I care very much about. So I, I think I know where this question's heading. When you walk out with your nieces and nephews, uh, and I assume, and I may be wrong, that you've taken them to look at rocks, what is the most important thing that you want to convey to them? And when have you done that? Well, my niece and my two nephews live in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And, you know, I, I know that they're not ready for, you know, the weird gloom and doom stuff that their uncle works on. Um, but I know that they're kids and they love, you know, they have dinosaur toys and things like that. And so I do try to sort of awaken in them the same sort of wonder that, I, you know, I've only really cultivated as an adult where I'll point to, you know, rocks in their neighborhood and explain where they came from. So, for instance, they live in Park Slope and Park Slope's famous for its brownstones. And those brownstones are were quarried from Connecticut. And they are from the middle of Pangaea during the age of dinosaurs. And so I, I tell them, you know, these are these were left by, you know, rivers and things like that. So let me get this straight. When we are in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. we are walking down those uh, attached homes, brownstone fronts, that rock was yeah. from the time of dinosaurs derived from Connecticut. Rock, yeah. They're from these rift valleys in the middle of Pangaea from the age of dinosaurs. Wow. You might notice that when you're walking, there's this slate. Sidewalks, and mm -hmm. some of them have ripple. Some of them have ripples in them. Oh, I know them well. You and, see them all over Connecticut and Massachusetts. Right. Those ripple marks were left by running water, and those were quarried from the Catskills in New York. And those are from 100 million years earlier, when the Catskills of New York were sort of like a Bangladesh um, environment. So the, it's again, like I said, it's sort of seeing the world for the first time once you can decipher this stuff. Peter, let me ask you one last question. Have you ever been in an environment where you've been looking at the historical elements of, of nature? And have you ever been moved to tears? And if so, where? Actually, I, I go into it in the book where I'm in the, um, you mentioned it earlier, the Dinosaur State Park in Connecticut, which seems like a ridiculous place to be so moved. But um, there was something that hit me for the first time, which is, that when you see dinosaur models in museums, a lot of times they're sort of made to look like these scary monsters. and It's hard to appreciate that they were living individual animals with biographies um, and life histories and, you know, trials and tribulations and things like that. And being at Dinosaur State Park, which is this one of the largest dinosaur trackways, so they're just covered in footprints um, from the early Jurassic um, that was discovered actually when they were building a state building and, you know, they started building the foundation and they found all these footprints everywhere. But you, you look at those footprints and you realize that, you know, this wasn't a dinosaur in the Jurassic. This is, you know, an individual living on, you know, this is a Tuesday afternoon and you see the footprints sort of go this way and then stop and then go that way. And, so it really tracks sort of the thoughts in the mind of this animal that lived hundreds of millions of years ago that were separated by this huge gulf of time that seems totally uh, unbridgeable, except in moments like this where you realize that it was just sort of, this was just an average day and it was going through its life. And it really hit me there that, uh, you know, that was just as real and vital and um, fully realized of a day of life on planet Earth as today is. So um, were you literally moved to tears for a moment? I, I was getting misty-eyed, for sure. And then, as I say in the book, a car alarm went off in the distance, and it sort of like broke... Snapped you back. Yeah, right. <laughs> Peter Brannan, I have to thank you for bringing uh, delight and uh, magic to seemingly inanimate forms of rock, which are Ironically, you've proven to be very much alive, historically and otherwise. This is a, a great book. I want to thank you personally for awakening something in me that was, was latent and uh, had not been stirred. And your book has done that. It's a book of science. It's a book of concern. It's a book of hope. 
desire, and uh, I'm going to say in it, with some license, romance, because it makes everything special on this planet. Thank you so very much for awakening um, even a new dimension of love for America in me and our listeners and for the world. Thank you, sir. You've done a, a, a great, great service to all of us. You've been listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and my special guest has been Peter Brennan. He has rewarded us all with this wonderful work, The Ends of the World. Thank you, sir, and God bless. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. 